Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer at Dynasty Financial Partners. And I am joined today by two very special guests. First, Steve Tenney, who's the founding partner and Chief Executive Officer at Great Diamond Partners, a graduate of Tufts University. He started Great Diamond Partners two years and seven months ago, approximately. Uh, in Portland, Maine, and prior to that, he spent uh, almost 26 years at UBS. Fun fact about Steve, he has completed two full-length Ironmans. Our second guest, Nicolie Turner, Managing Director and a business consultant at Charles Schwab, where she's been for eight years. Prior to that, she was a vice president at Colby. And interestingly, she was both a manager uh, for the Arizona Supreme Court and a probation officer. Today, we're going to discuss a trending topic or theme about data, how to use it, what to measure, lessons learned, um, and like always, we're going to have a, a pretty hopefully entertaining uh, and lively discussion. So welcome to Steve and Nickley. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to get this going. Thank you, Austin. Thank you. I'm excited as well. All right. So Steve, could you provide a brief background of yourself, your firm, and the role that you play? Sure. Thanks, Austin. I'm the, the, as you said, the founding partner and CEO of Great Diamond Partners, an independent firm and here in Great Portland, Maine. Uh, we work with individuals and families, and many of these families we've worked with for uh, multiple generations, and a lot of them are either current or former business owners. Our client service model is that of a, a virtual family office where we're combining the, the talents and collaborating with the people here at the firm with the expertise in our local and also national network of experts to solve those issues that are really most important for our clients. Our business model comes from the concept of conscious capitalism, where we work to benefit all of our stakeholders. And that includes clients, employees, yes, the owners, uh, our strategic partners, and the community. Within the firm, within Great Diamond Partners, I'm a client advisor. I also lead the investment consulting effort. Um, but as my role as CEO, I'm determining the, the long-term strategic direction of the firm and also developing the resources and partnerships that help us reach those objectives. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Nicolie, a little bit about yourself and your firm and the role that you play. Sure, Austin. Thank you. So Nicolie Turner, as you mentioned, and I lead our business consulting team here at Charles Schwab. Our focus is to help advisory firms around the country to look at their businesses and see how they might become even better versions of themselves. So we are working with advisors side by side. We're tackling challenges and opportunities, things like growth, profitability, succession, planning, all of those kinds of, of things that I'm sure we'll get into a little bit more today. Um, I've been at, at Schwab for eight years, and I just love the work that we get to do with the advisor community. Cool. So I, I, one of the things that that's most interesting to me and that I find very lucky to be able to do is, uh, as you mentioned, Nickley work with you know a lot of really great advisors, Steve being one of those. And I, I remember, I think it was this summer, uh, sitting out on the porch at my family's home in Massachusetts. So I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, sitting out on the porch. And Steve, you and I were talking, 
and you told me uh, that particular day was one of the best days that you had had as a financial advisor. And it wasn't just around um, the success that you had had with a prospect, but it was just the overall feeling. So before we get into data, because that's obviously a really important topic and the actual topic of the podcast, I just I wonder if you could take yourself back and share with the listeners, people that are in, interested in uh, becoming business owners and entrepreneurs, why was that day so special? Um, honestly, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say that, that what gets me excited is seeing the people here at the firm really uh, succeed and helping our clients succeed. Um, being an entrepreneur is, is one of the, the greatest things I've ever done. And, it's, and being independent has really allowed that, that feeling, that effort to flourish. Um, and so it's, I, can, I can get successes from all different angles, whether it's uh, personally rewarding something that I've, I've accomplished here or seeing what others have done around me. Great. We are going to jump into uh, data, and as as we all know, metrics and benchmarks are are prevalent in many areas of our lives, from business to health. And as technology increases and improves, and our supercomputers that we hold in our hand become more and more sophisticated, tracking all sorts of different analytics uh, are just going to become uh, even more of a norm. And so. Three questions that I have. Uh, one, why is it important to track key metrics? Two, what are the key metrics that you track? It can be either from a business or a professional, business professional or personal standpoint. And three, how have you used this data uh, to make decisions? So, Steve, you want to kick it off uh, with, with those three questions? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's really important to track various metrics in regardless of what process that you're engaged in, if it's important to you, you've, you've got to track your progress. And that might be uh, progress towards goals for clients, or it could be uh, the business plan for the firm. If you know where you want to go, it only makes sense to, to check the, the, to see if you're on track. And that way, as you're going, you can make tweaks, you can make adjustments or maybe some information has come out that you see certain efforts are even more impactful, and then you, you double down on those. You, you put even more effort into those to improve your chances of success. In terms of the metrics that we track, uh, being a wealth management firm, they're very, they're, I'll start out just with the typical things that we track, AUM, new assets, new clients, revenue, EBITDA, you know, those are all important. We've got to know them, uh, but it's lagging data. And there, it's also impacted by things that are out of our control, most especially the capital markets. Um, right. You know, it, it, a rising tide rises all boats. It helps um, our, our AUM, it helps our revenue, it he, helps our EBITDA, but it's not a reflection of our efforts. So we want to also look at data that we do have direct control over and contributes to the growth of the firm and the impact of the firm. So looking at our, for example, our organic growth efforts, 
Uh, there are some leading indicators that we do have control over, such as the number of LinkedIn followers, number of new prospects or discovery meetings. And each of those are a, an important part or important step in the, in the business development process. Then as business owners, um, we're looking at other things. For example, um, the, the relationship between administrative costs and revenue. So that's a gauge of administrative capacity and efficiency. We want to keep that low. We actually want to keep that number going down gradually, but it's important to have that downside limit. I think there are times where we need to make a stair-step addition uh, or you know, increase in those costs, in that ratio, um, so that we keep pace with the growth of the business, so that we maintain or hopefully improve on the quality of the work that we're doing for clients, and so that the firm remains a great place to work for our employees. The last thing I'll add, Austin, is as part of our conscious capitalism orientation, we want to know if we're executing on our purpose. Our purpose is to connect community to opportunity. So we're going to track things like charitable giving, and uh, the number of meaningful connections to opportunity that we're making. Love that. Nicolee, you work with a whole host of advisors across the country, and, and Steve brought up a lot of different metrics that he, that he tracks, both traditional and what I would categorize perhaps as non-traditional. What are the things that you are seeing uh, other RIAs tracking, and, and how are you working with your clients to help them interpret that data and hopefully make better decisions? Yes, I think I'd, um, I'd like to start off by just adding also one thing to why I think it's important to track metrics. I agree with everything that Steve said, but I would add additionally that um, metrics help to identify trends, right? And hopefully future trends. So we're always looking at the data to see what it might reveal into the future or um, to help us understand what are those leading indicators. Um, so that's, a, that's a, I think, an important aspect of metrics that we're looking at and looking to try and find. Uh, additionally, I think we track um, you know, many of the same key metrics through our benchmarking study. Uh, we have a, a ton of data that we're tracking. If a firm, though, is asking you know, what are the most important things that they should be tracking? Um, I think a robust sort of baseline uh, set of data points helps you understand then what are the most important or the key metrics that you want to be paying attention to, to, as Steve mentioned, to um, to encourage behavior changes or to, to uh, set goals that are realistic and that are meaningful. So we're, we're definitely looking for what are the metrics that are specifically important to that firm because uh, where one firm excels, then maybe the metrics are less meaningful or less telling. They're, they're you know, showing a nice consistent trajectory. Um, for another firm, a different metric might highlight an opportunity that we can dig into and to, um, and to see how we might adjust that over time. And I just have to add, uh, that personally, I'm tracking the number of times that my kids actually listen and respond in the future better to requests I have of them. That's something I'm constantly tracking. I don't know if we're getting any better, but we're trying. What do what do the what does the trend say? Are we trending in the right direction or not, Nickley? They, 
they are slightly trending in the right direction. Yes. yes. There we go. And we there celebrate we that in my house. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I want to come back to something that, that you, uh, I believe you said, Stephen, and unpack it a little bit, which is <clears throat> around the uh, way in how you monitor administrative tasks and, and probably a, more specifically how you manage the workload of the individuals that are providing assistance to those that are focused on tasks like bringing uh, bringing in new clients and new revenue. And I said in a different way, capacity. So how do you, in your role as the CEO, both analyze capacity and then make decisions as to when to add uh, new people to the team so that uh, individuals can can focus on higher level tasks? It's a good question. And and to be honest, it's something that is is really developing. It's it's emerging or evolving for us. Um, we recently had a discussion just with the advisors, uh, the five advisors at the firm. And we started out with a quantitative aspect, looking at each person and total number of clients, households, um, or uh, households, uh, revenue and assets. And you know, that, that's all important. That informs it. But then there's the, the more qualitative aspect, which is what else are they doing? Um, do they have firm responsibilities? Right. Um, it, it just how are they feeling? Are they feeling overwhelmed? And so it's, a, it's important that it be a, a healthy dialogue uh, as a group. And, and we challenged each other. We had someone that said they were at 80% capacity. And we said, I, I don't think so. I think you're closer to 90, 95% capacity. And when we look at capacity, the objective is not to be at 100. Right. I think the objective should be more like 90% because for really two reasons. Most importantly, we got to stay healthy. You know, we, we don't want to feel beat up every day going home from work. We want to feel great about what we're doing. And if there's a little bit of give in our schedule, in our, uh, in our lives, that's a healthy thing. Um, also, we want that cushion to be able to absorb new things. Let, hopefully, it's new clients right. that come in. And, and they come in, and, and capacity goes from 90 to 95 to 100%, maybe a little bit beyond. Then we can start to make um, some decisions around what to do. And, and those decisions... Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit. Um, it, it's, those, are, those are really fun for me. I enjoy trying to figure out what to do with uh, you know, how to handle those capacity issues. And, and Austin, I'd add to that that the power of having um, a large set of data outside of just an individual firm is that we can help guide and show what other firms are doing. So for example, if you're a firm that's between 100 million and 250 million, we know, um, you know, what are the data points? What are the metrics? What's the median uh, number of, of households that an advisor is managing? We know how many total staff uh, those firms have. And so being able to have that um, broader picture of the industry and specifically your peer group um, helps a firm then take their own individual data and, and sort of compare it against others uh, that are at least, you know, similar, if not uh, apples to apples comparison. So that's really powerful when you have over, you know, 1300 firms participating in a, in a similar or same data set that can give you some 
uh, greater insight beyond just diving into your individual firm data. And Austin, I'll, I'll confirm what Nicolay has said. We use the Schwab benchmarking study. It's been very helpful. Not only is it specific to what size firm we are, but geographically. And we can look at um, you know, total compensation and makeup of compensation for different roles and total expenses and profitability and growth rates and things like that. It, it informs us. It does not make decisions for us, but it, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool. Right. And both of those uh, concepts or um, what we've been talking about, I think at times is overlooked. So coming back specifically to, to capacity. So if you, if you think about a traditional goal setting or metric and you say, we want to bring in you know, $200,000 of new revenue in 2022. And we think that's going to come from, you know, $150 million of net new assets or whatever the numbers are. That is the stated goal. And the, the next set of questions should be around, well, who is going to be responsible for driving that? And if they're adding on new tasks and new activities, who is then going to take on the things that they need to shed in order to be effective. And sometimes that second part of the question is missed. And to your point, Steve, when you think about capacity, you know, there's a, I think there's a risk from a mentality perspective for people to be like, we need our employees to be working at 110% of their capacity. And I like what you said, that just isn't, that's not sustainable and it's not healthy. So from the data that you have, Nicole, around the benchmarking studies, and when you share that, are there variances between the principles of the company and how they use that data? And, and how, what's their argument if, if, they, if you tell them they're understaffed or overstaffed typically? Well, I think, um, you know, how a firm uses that, that, that data is really important. And, and to be clear, I don't think it's our role to go in and, and tell a firm that they're understaffed or overstaffed. I think it is our, our job, though, to... Um, to discuss the data and to highlight the data, and most importantly, to ask questions around the data, because that then um, informs a larger um, information set, right? We want to understand why does the data look like this, and then we can determine, um, make decisions, as, as Steve mentioned, based on all of the factors, not just the data set that we're looking at. So, for example, um, you know, I'm going to see a different uh, ratio of employees for a family office than I am going to be for another firm that is uh, specializing more mass affluent. Got it. So it's important to ask questions and, and find out what is behind the data. Cool. I'm going to pivot and, and ask, a, uh, I guess, a different question, which is, it's my belief that there's an intersection, probably it's just not my belief, most people probably ascribe to this theory, that there's an intersection between using data and metrics and gut instinct for decision making. So for you, Steve, as a leader, how do you use you know, gut instinct or your experience or whatever you want to call it and data to make decisions? How does the human element of your business factor into this process? And can you give us one uh, example of a decision that you made that went, quote unquote, against the data? Sure. Um, you know, when I'm looking at, at decisions, and you're right, it's a, it's a mix of metrics and gut. Um, two things I'm considering. One is any decision we make needs to be consistent with the long-term vision of the firm. 
And second, I need to check with others to make sure my thinking is correct. Um, you know, one of my strengths, I think, is to see connections and possibilities oftentimes where others just don't see them. And I think that leads to some great breakthrough ideas. It also leads to ideas, frankly, that are just bad or they might be good, but not at the right time. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes I need to be grounded. I need to be challenged. And I turn to my partners and my coaches, those around me. Uh, they're, they're good at that. In terms of, you know, how a decision that we made that went against the data, I'll go back to the whole capacity issue. Um, we were at the beginning of this year, beginning of 2021, we were um, at or perhaps even a little beyond capacity. And it, it was really a result of the, the surge in new business that we were seeing. It was a wonderful surge, something that we had never seen before, very encouraging. It was also very challenging. And in the end, I, I advocated for hiring a, a new younger associate advisor. And I'll, I'll share with you for a minute the, the arguments for and against. And what's, what's really interesting is that we're actually at a very similar junction today. So the, there were some arguments against hiring this person. Number one topic of the, this podcast is data. The data wasn't showing it. Our assets and revenue really hadn't, hadn't budged that much other than what was a result of the, the nice tailwind that the markets were giving us. And those, again, are, are trailing indicators. Um, this new advisor was not going to bring in any assets to help cover their salary. So it was initially, it was a sunk cost. Mm -hmm. um, and I also had some peers and coaches that were arguing against the whole idea. The arguments for it were, we're, a, we're a planning heavy firm and typically planning, as you know, Austin, it's very hard to scale. And I knew long-term we were gonna need some more resources there. We believe in working with all members of the family, um, even the grown children, who they may not have substantial resources yet, but it's, it's important for them to have an advisor that's their own age, uh, and it's important for us, the, the more senior advisors, to stay focused on the needs of our core clients. Uh, I was sensing that advisors, including myself, were starting to struggle with some capacity issues. Um, long term, we're also building our succession plan. And you've had a, another one of your episodes talked about succession planning. We've got a long runway in front of us, but yep. the best succession plans take a long time to develop. So we wanted to start to seed that. And the, probably the most important thing is that I want everyone here to focus on their unique abilities and if we're scrambling, if everyone's scrambling to keep up or stay up with the growth, there's a tendency to diverge from your unique ability and start to take on tasks that just distract from what you're best at and what you enjoy. So in the end, we hired Wyatt. Um, he's certainly had an impact in the ways we anticipated. Plus, he brought uh, far greater expertise around data and technology and process, and that has, has made our, the, the foundation of the firm even stronger. He's also, frankly, he's 27. He's brought great energy, a fresh perspective. Yeah. So, you know, in the end, the data didn't suggest hiring Wyatt, but in our, our vision, 
um, and our gut told us it was the right decision, it was the right time. So in April, he came on board, and as I mentioned, he's, he's doing a great job, and we're going through a similar examination today. Interesting. I know that, again, in, in prep for this, you, you talked about another aspect of your life I alluded to in the, the intro around uh, you completing two full-length Ironmans. And you talked a little bit about how data, while uh, was a part of your journey, um, also may have been somewhat of a hindrance. Do you mind sharing just your thoughts on that with, with the listeners? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've done two triathlons. Um, really, I found my, my niche, if you will, uh, in the, some of the shorter distance, the sprint and Olympic distance races. And um, I will admit publicly, I was fairly obsessed with the, with the sport. And so I, I tracked data. I tracked every mile. I tracked every yard in the pool. Uh, time, every pedal stroke, heartbeat, watts, which is a measure of power on the bike, and uploaded everything to the computer. So I analyzed it, looked at trends, looked at maximum efforts. I was able to see, you know, nice improvement over time and, um, you know, plan for future workouts. And I was in, uh, it was, you know, mid-July that one year, and I was in, um, uh, outside of North Conway, New Hampshire, at, at a friend's cabin on the lake. And we went for a, a bike ride in the White Mountains, and he's a much better biker than I am, and he kicked my butt and just really pushed me uh, far beyond where I'd been in the past. And statistically, my data said, holy moly, that's a, what a great effort. You know, the, my maximum power for 20 minutes was fantastic. Later that day... Um, I, I commented to him, I was getting out of a chair, and I said, good God, it just, it, it takes so much effort just to get out of the chair, and it was not a result of just that, that day's effort. It was in general, it was a feeling that I had. He told me to take three days off completely, and he's a, he's a doctor, he's very knowledgeable about sports science, he said take three days off. So I listened, didn't do, barely moved a muscle for three days, and um, came back from that and was incredibly strong, had even better results. Now, the, the data going into it, data kept getting better. I was getting be stronger and faster. It was all fine. But I was wiped out mentally. And physically, I then realized that break made me even stronger. I also, with, with a little more time and perspective, realized that the data was all-consuming for me personally. And I just, I was not present when I was with those people that I care most about, my family, those people that I work with, my friends. Um, I was always thinking about the, the data, the next race, the next workout, uh, the one that I just did this morning, whatever it was. And it's, it, I think it's really important to keep, to follow data but keep it in its place. And that was my experience with triathlon. Um, clearly, I, I took it a little too far. I like that line, follow data, but keep it in its place. And Nicola, you, you had a similar experience. Um, yours was a little bit different in terms of the way in which data helped you. Would you mind sharing uh, your athletic endeavors? <laughs> 
I don't know if we can call them so athletic compared to the two of you, Austin, but uh, um, I did, uh, not being a runner, I did set a, a very public goal for myself to run a, a marathon. And at the time, I couldn't even run one mile without stopping. And so I was just reflecting for me, um, because it was in its probably in its proper place, the data was so helpful to make sure that I was able to train appropriately and uh, without injury and that I was able to complete that sort of big, hairy, audacious goal for me, which was to do the full marathon, uh, which I was able to complete. So that was um, that was a, a place and a example where data was really good for me because it was helping me directionally get to where I wanted to go. I think um, the intersection between the metrics and gut instinct, like you said, kind of is is what's fascinating to me and really kind of makes sense of my professional life. I know you brought up that I was a probation officer uh, in my sort of in my past life or in my early career. And that was all about studying human behavior and psychology and really understanding how people work, uh, you know, with not without much data. And it was fascinating. It was a very interesting career, you know, transitioned that into consulting based on that study of human behavior and of how organizations work. And um, what was interesting for me was the reason why I actually made the move to Schwab was, uh, or decided to, to come to Schwab was that during the interview process, they uh, emailed over this ginormous document, 50 some pages of data. Uh, of course, today it's it's very familiar and I know and love it, but it was the Schwab benchmarking report data. And as part of the interview, they asked me you know, some questions about this, but as I was consuming this information and I was seeing all of the data and the metrics that was available at my fingertips and all of the, the insights and the ways that I could use that data, it became so clear to me, not only did I have to go to Schwab so that I would have access to that data, um, but I knew that I could never be uh, the same kind of consultant uh, without that level of data. So it was so important to be able to elevate uh, being a consultant because I knew the questions to ask. I didn't have to rely so much uh, on my instincts, uh, but I had data to help guide me as well. So it was a really uh, important intersection for me. Cool. Through through that examination of both gut instinct and um, having quantitative data available to make decisions, um, I think it illustrates a point that there needs to be you know, obviously interpretation of numbers and what it means. And there needs to be an overlay on those numbers specific to business because each business is going to be different. In a, in a vacuum, data is just just numbers. So for me, the questions um, that I like to hear from you, Steve, are just can you describe uh, to other people listening, CEOs and other members, your thought process around how you use the information to diagnose and solve problems. Two, what types of questions do you ask? I mean, I think that's a really important topic. What type of questions that you ask to get to the root cause of, of issues? And then how do you link actions and behaviors of your team back to statistical data? And we've covered some of this in previous uh, parts of this podcast, but I'd like to see what, what, what your answer is to, to those questions. 
Sure. Um, let's look at organic business growth as an example. Great. Uh, we're going to look at several data points. Are we getting the number of referrals and discovery meetings that we need to fill the pipeline? If not, are we reaching out enough to clients, to centers of influence to generate those referrals? Are we executing on our service model? Um, if not, is it because uh, the admin team or the advisors or both are beyond capacity? You know, maybe it's just we've got too much going on. Um, so it's this, it's this funneling process to, to try to get to um, the root cause. And, and sometimes we get to the point where we need to ask some, some more challenging questions, have some difficult conversations, because we may not learn anything. When we go through those questions, maybe there's, there's nothing that jumps out. So we've got to get to the, really to the, to the root cause. And um, as I said, that can, be, that can be sometimes difficult. Is there an accountability issue? Is it, do, we, do we have a, a culture of accountability? Do we have an issue where a, a particular individual has an accountability issue? It's possible that with the data, we're just getting lucky or maybe we're getting unlucky. Um, is there, are there things that are in our control, out of our control? Is it, Nick Lee mentioned seeing trends earlier. Is, is what we're seeing a trend or just an aberration? So there's a lot of, um, a lot of massaging, if you will, of, of these conversations, but it's, it's really important that we try to have a very open and honest conversation um, with, with various teams at the firm or perhaps one-on-one you know, -on -one conversations with individuals. In terms of linking actions to statistical data, we do establish um, regular quarterly goals and ongoing data points. They are very clearly laid out uh, publicly to the whole firm, to each group. We say, uh, each individual says, this is what I am going to do. Then we've got various groups within the firm where um, they might meet every week or maybe every month or quarterly and we're accountable in every single one of those meetings. We're looking at the data points. If we're on track, great, yes, move on. If we're not on track, we make it an issue to be discussed later in the meeting. And um, you know, when we get to the sort of the end of that time period, let's say the end of the quarter, if someone said, has said all along, I'm on track, I'm on track, I'm on track, but they didn't hit the goal, well, we've got an issue. We've got to, we've got to talk about that. Why didn't that happen? Did, was it not realistic? Did you just not do the work? What's going on? So again, it can be, they can be challenging conversations, but oftentimes some of the most important conversations. Great. And Nicoly, what are the, what are the important questions that you ask in your work as a consultant? Um, I, I think the most important question that we ask is why? Um, that curiosity uh, helps us to start to peel the onion and get to some of those root cause or issues um, that you talked about. But I think more specifically, it's really interesting. I think we we don't get very much pushback, but when we do get pushback around using benchmarking and gathering data like that, um, you know, sometimes it's because the the industry and, and firms have been doing so well for so long, right? They've been growing at these fantastic rates. Sometimes 
uh, principals and other advisors don't want to stop to look at the data because they say everything's going great. Why do we need to look at the numbers? Um, but the numbers can reveal um, some very interesting things. And uh, and to, to Steve's point, is this something where uh, we should consider ourselves lucky? Uh, and then also thinking about innovation. You know, we know that the business life cycle, that there is ebbs and flows, that you have to jump the curve, that you have to um, inject innovation and reinvent your business at different stages. Uh, and the, I think the best way to do that is by looking at the numbers and seeing those opportunities through those numbers. Um, but, you know, when we're working with a firm, typically they've, they've participated in the benchmarking study and that really opens maybe a meeting uh, with looking at some of the data, asking those questions. And then from there, you know, it's, it's, well, why do you think this number looks this way? Why do you think this number looks this way relative to perhaps your peers? Um, and then we want to know, you know, additional questions like, you know, uh, it's really your classic who, what, why, when, um, to try and peel back the onion and really recognize. So for example, if a firm had declining growth, we would want to know, you know, sort of what, why, what does the firm think that that reason is? Because a lot of times those gut instincts do uh, inform uh, are, are pretty close and then the data backs that up. Um, but also we want to understand, is there something like, for example, you have someone who's great at bringing in uh, business, a great business developer, and maybe that person has been distracted or uh, no longer wants to do that, or they've retired. Uh, and what has you know, what has replaced that? So the numbers can help look at those things beyond just like, oh, we need to um, we need to increase goals or we need to do something else. Uh, I think uh, additionally, I'll just say that the metrics help us when we're entering into sort of new territory. Digital marketing is a hot topic these days. And the data helps us because the industry is just really figuring out. It's really kind of at its infancy of figuring out how to do digital marketing and how to measure that. And, you know, the first question advisors want to ask is, well, what's the, how do I measure ROI on digital right. marketing? And uh, that's really hard without understanding the additional underlying metrics, the activities to, to Steve's point, the activities and behaviors that we think are going to lead us down success. So it helps to develop new competencies too, which I, I would say digital marketing for most advisors is a new competency. And although it's it's not unique to financial services, I think there's an over tendency uh, in our industry to have question answer. And what I mean by that is, right, you know, there are a lot of really high K level intelligent people. And so naturally, what they want to do in most situations is take a question and immediately answer it. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, there's a there's a professor at MIT, and he has created uh, what he calls catalytic questions in a way in which you're able to uh, create catalytic questions, which are things that could, the answer to these questions could massively impact or change or solve a problem. And the methodology that, he's, that he uh, suggests could be useful is something that's called a question burst. Basically what it is, is you start with a question and then you ask as many questions as you can for four minutes and you don't have any answers. And then you look at all of the questions that came out of that four minute question burst and you see the connections that, that could apply to what you're actually trying to solve. 
Now, when I say it out loud, and even when I tried it the first time, I was like, this thing is weird. Like, there's no way that there's actually going to be anything useful coming from this, just asking questions. But if you truly give into the process and you utilize the strategy, I think you would be surprised at how, how many, how four minutes of questions can unlock things that you probably weren't thinking about because what you were immediately trying to do was come up with solutions for that first problem. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great point. I mean, we we have a version of that that we call the five whys. And and to to your point and to that professor's point, it's not just stopping at the first question, but it's asking more questions uh, sometimes that you that you sort of intuitively think have already been answered, but until you ask them again or ask them in that sort of questioning format, um, it doesn't really present itself, and the opportunities don't present themselves. So I think. I love the idea of question bursts. We use five whys, which means we don't just stop at the first question and just take that answer at face value. We we keep probing and asking more questions to really get to that root cause. Austin, I want to chime in on that. And that is, yeah. I, it, in, in my mind, we're highlighting another issue, and that is the importance of having outsiders participate in the process. You know, we've got 10 people at this firm. Um, if if we're the only ones that that analyze an issue, we might be completely missing something because it's just it's sort of we're always we're looking for confirmation bias all the time. But with you know our partners at Schwab and Dynasty, I've got several coaches, peers in the industry that are um, just elsewhere in the country, um, but also other entrepreneurs, other businesses. It, we can. I get so much value in talking with them and getting their perspective. I believe that the the core issues that we deal with in our industry are no different than any other industry, regardless of the size of the company. And so, getting their perspective on things, um, having them challenge us, I think is incredibly healthy and can lead to better decisions. Thousand percent. And you know what that also implies, at least from my perspective, humility. Mm-hmm. The ability to accept the fact that you, that we, that no one can know everything and that good ideas can come from all different parts of your organization, all different types of people. Um, to put a finer point on what you were saying, Steve, other industries and leaders, because there are tons of similarities between what we're trying to do as wealth management entrepreneurs and consultants to wealth management entrepreneurs and people that are just successful in business. And so I find that sometimes like that, that aspect of being humble and asking for help can be difficult when you're in a position of power. So you've obviously been able to do that successfully, Steve, um, based on what you've shared with us. How do you do that? How do you um, remain open to receiving advice and guidance from different people? And is there any any story that you could share about where you received something that was truly beneficial to the business from an unexpected source? Yeah, it, for me, it goes back to um, an experience. One of my the the highlights of the year I, from a business perspective, it is the highlight of the year. Um, obviously, for obvious reasons, we didn't do it last year. But typically, I meet a group of uh, fellow advisors uh, for a week of skiing. Um, we go to Beaver Creek. We're all we all stay in the same house, and these are people from different channels. You know, both the wirehouses and independents. And 
every morning at seven o'clock and every night at five o'clock, someone's on the hot seat and you have to describe, um, describe your, your practice, describe what your primary challenge is. Then we go around the circle and everyone asks a clarifying question that, that you, you answer. Um, then we go around the circle and every person tells, gives you their opinion about your situation. And what, what's, what was incredible about it was, was not just um, the, the, the advice that I, I received for my firm, for my practice, but it was more seeing how people think because stuff would come out of left field. I would say my problem is X, and they would say, you're full of it. Your problem is Y. And that's what you need to tackle. And it was like a two by four to the side of the head. And like, oh, you know what? You're right. I've been living in my little bubble. I thought this was my problem. But no, it's not. I need to totally change direction, put my energies behind something else. And, and there were a number of um, issues that I've brought up to this group where it was a it was – I don't want to say heated in an adversarial way, but it was an intense conversation. And then, you know, later we're on the chairlift or we're having drinks later at night, whatever it is. And we, I can go a lot deeper with some of these people that, that really challenged me in a thoughtful way. And, and that is an experience that um, it, it takes the, you need, you need humble and very thoughtful people uh, to, to participate. If you can find that group, it's absolutely invaluable. And, and I, I like to replicate that and anywhere I can go again, you got to have the right people, the right environment. What a great idea. That that's super cool. Yeah. Can I just, uh, expand on that a little bit? Because I think one of the things, um, that, that drives, uh, humility, uh, came to me from an uh, maybe perhaps an unlikely source. And eight or nine years ago, I started following, at the time, a relatively uh, lesser-known sociologist, uh, Brene Brown. And she talks about the power of vulnerability. And I think that uh, then applying that um, the insights from her research and her work on vulnerability, applying that to the business world was really powerful for me. And I think that is what drives you asked, you know, how do you get to that humility? How do you stay open and curious so that you can use that information to, to make improvements and to inform? And I think, the, I think what drives that is vulnerability. So, you know, being willing to open yourself up and to be vulnerable with those around you uh, just helps you exponentially come to that place of humility and curiosity. Absolutely. I want to uh, switch gears, ask you about uh, the study that you have uh, mentioned a few times, the Schwab benchmarking study. Two pretty simple questions. The first one is, how does the study identify uh, firms that are outperforming uh, their peers? And then second, would you, would you mind sharing your most meaningful interaction that you've had with uh, the work that you've done with the study and a client? Sure, sure. So the um, the high-performing groups uh, that we see in the benchmarking study, we measure 15 different metrics. Ten of them are very qualitative. Five of them are more qualitative. Um, and we measure the firms across the study and come up with the top 20% of those really high-performing firms, those top performers, 
Uh, what's interesting is that we see firms can be top performers no matter their size. So we have folks who, who jump into that elite level uh, from very small firms, and we also see firms that are, are very large. So those metrics, of course, are things that you would imagine in terms of growth. We're looking at compound growth metrics. We're looking at um, assets, revenue, things like that. And then on the qualitative side, we're looking for some things that, again, this is where I think uh, data is so interesting because you may not have uh, linked the the action with the potential consequences or the data that could result from it. But we've been working with advisory firms for years, uh, trying to help them really uh, envision and document their ideal client persona. This is something that we believe very strongly and all the consultants talk to firms about this because we, we just knew the power of it. It was sort of that gut instinct. We understood the power of how focusing your business on that ideal client persona could really pay off. What we've seen in the benchmarking data, and it is one of those qualitative metrics of high performers, is what that does when you combine that or when you bring that into your firm and what that does for new assets and new clients. Um, this, on this, our most recent benchmarking data, we, we looked at firms that had a, a written marketing plan that had that ideal client persona that I was talking about and also a client value proposition. When they had those three things, those firms got 50% more new client assets in 2020 and that resulted in 62% um, I'm sorry, they got 50% more clients and that resulted in 62% uh, more new client assets. I mean, those are phenomenal numbers, right? Advisors are all, always asking, how do we grow? Um, and I think that's a great example of how you can bring those metrics to life and say, oh, well, you know, how are we doing on those things that have been indicators of success for other firms? Um, so that's a little bit about our, our high performing group. And, you know, there's so many interactions that have been meaningful for me uh, in my consulting work. I do often reflect, though, on a, a firm in L.A. that I had worked with for a number of years. So probably about five or six years ago, started working with them. And the question on the table was they're looking at their benchmarking data and they're saying, I think I think we need to adjust our fees. We see that, you know, we're not necessarily um uh, maybe charging enough for some of our clients. And so, Nicoly, can you help us think about our fees? Uh, and as I mentioned before, the, the benchmarking is just really a, a launching pad or a foundation to ask a lot of questions. And as we started digging into questions, we started talking about segmentation and what does that look like at their firm? And really, through that questioning process, what we revealed is one of the things that was making all of these numbers um, sort of reflect something, and that was that uh, they had a problem attract, attracting and retaining talent. They were really struggling with being able to bring folks into the firm. And I know this is a common a common challenge for a lot of advisory firms, but they this was really affecting them in multiple different ways on their, and you could see it reflected in their benchmarking report. And so what that that conversation led to was them to target specific things that they were going to do to try and um and first and foremost, attract talent to their firm. Uh, and, and they did that. And what I love is that I know this firm uh, well. They have more than doubled in size. They not only um, attract talent, they keep their talent. Their talent is happy. They ask them. They, they survey them. 
Um, and they also have, they put together an intern program so that they can grow their talent over the years. And I, I just love that story because I know that it started uh, sort of like head scratching, looking at the data uh, and it evolved into a firm that is just really transformed. They have a much stronger culture. Like I said, they've been growing phenomenally. They have talent. They're secure in uh, in a very difficult uh, labor market. They're secure with the talent that they have and, and the way that they cultivate them. So I just love that. As I mentioned before, my my passion around this is really helping firms become even better versions of themselves. So again, it wasn't this firm wasn't this firm was still doing really well. Um, but when they uh, by asking those questions and looking at the data and being humble, as you mentioned, uh, they were able to uncover some other things that made them even better. Great, thanks for sharing that, Steve. Any thoughts? Um, I, I I love her comments. It's. Um you know, getting, getting help and perspective, uh, is always great from people that, that have the benefit of hearing from other firms like Schwab does. Um, you know, being able to attract or retain talent is, is not only important to us, it, it's obvious, as Nicolise said, it's a really hard environment. I will, I'm proud to say, you know, it's not a data point we track, but it's a data point we're proud of. Um, we've posted for a couple of positions over the last year and we've had, you know, 50 to 150 people apply. Wow. And, and this is, this is a market where all the other business owners that I ever talked to say they just can't find people. We haven't had an issue. And I think that that's a really reflection of, of the culture that we've built. Yeah, that, that is one that's great into that's that's a really important point especially around uh everything that has happened uh since the pandemic has has kind of taken place and as companies try to figure out the right mix between remote work and uh work from the office and how that impacts potential uh you know employees and even current employees i guess the last part that i kind of want to bring to light is that you know the RA industry has and probably rightfully so, this concept of being fractured. And what I mean by being fractured is that there are all sorts of really successful businesses spread around the country that um, may not have a singular unifying theme. And so what Schwab does with their benchmarking and what we try to do at Dynasty with our, our community pillar is to take organizations that are disparate <clears throat> and try to bring them together. And that example that you use, Steve, of all the people getting together and sitting down and talking about issues and skiing and putting those two things and how impactful that is. I mean, that that needs, I think, to be a continued driver for the evolution of the RA space overall is finding the right spots and the right people humble enough to receive guidance from others and, um, you know, quantitatively driven from things like the benchmarking study so that people don't feel alone. You know, one of our tagline is independent, but not alone. And that's such a critical uh, component when you're an entrepreneur is to be able to um, partner with people and organizations in order to stay connected and understand what you could do better, uh, do less of, etc. So as we continue to solve these these bigger problems around staffing, around goals, around growth, organic and inorganic trying to find those communities and those places uh, for 
conversation is really important. And that's one of the basic tenets even of this podcast is to create a forum for people to talk about things in an open way. So I appreciate both of you uh, spending the time with me today. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope everyone gets ready for uh, 2022. I'm pumped up. Let's go. Thank you, Austin. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, Thanks, thank you Nicole. so much. And thank you, Steve. I can't wait to implement the hot seat at, uh, at the dinner table tonight. That'll be fun for the family. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, guys.